Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. Oh boy, we have not had an IndyCar race in about a month. And does that mean we slow down here on the show? This one powered by you, all listener driven. No, not at all. Thanks to our pal Jim Kaiser, who puts together the list each week for me tells me we have more than 3,200 words worth of questions, 63 questions submitted. And again, we haven't had a race in a month, but I love it. It tells me that IndyCar is thriving. Even last year this time, we did not have as many questions coming in. So just really happy to take the overall response to IndyCar, the seemingly unwavering number of questions and Topical items for us to get into each week is just great indicator that things are continuing to rise. So we're going to dive right in in just a sec. As always, want to say a huge thank you to Cooper Tires. Their tires do indeed power the road to Indy. Also, mighty fine road tires, off-road tires, just fine manufacture of tires all around. The Justice Brothers, whose automotive chemicals and lubricants I have used since 1986. Yes, that is true. And also our friends at torontomotorsports.com, motor racing memorabilia, like you just won't find anywhere else. There's a lot of fun, a lot of mirth, all, all coming out of our friends from north of the border, at least for here in the U.S., that being torontomotorsports.com. So please give them a look. So what are we talking about this week? Well, we just finished a test today at Barber Motorsports Park. Spoke with two of those drivers, David Malukas and Ryan Hunter-Ray. My racer colleague, Chris Medland, got connected with Nico Hulkenberg for about five minutes at the end of the day. And if I remember to talk about that, I'll go in a little bit deeper because there was a bit of a funny thing regarding that. Got some questions about drivers, silly season bits, uh, Netflix stuff. Probably going to open there on Drive to Survive, which, yeah, it's becoming an awkward thing, y'all. And awkward within the realm of IndyCar. Almost to the point of, you bring it up, and you just get a little bit of a groan, or a, come on, man, I I know, we know, uh, we need to have it now, it's going to change everything in our worlds, yada, yada, yada interesting responses and the reason i wanted to start with drive to survive actually at the very bottom well below the red line of death that our man jim makes for me and we pretty much stick to what's above the red line at the very bottom the last one uh for my pal hrisha despond so i'm gonna call a bit of an audible and kick the show off here with hrishi uh talking about serious question great to see so many non-race fans becoming f1 fans through drive to survive on netflix because i know it's been asked before many times before but what can be done to make these f1 fans of other motorsports say care about indy cars maybe even sports cars aside from just doing an indy car version of drive to survive <sighs> so we're going to get into the test here and what went on today at Barber and all that stuff in just a minute. But I really did like Rishi's submission here talking about last weekend's U.S. Grand Prix at Circuit of the Americas because as I watched it, and I watched pretty much the whole, what, hour or so 
pre-race show and festivities all the way through to the checkered flag. What I watched was something that had yours truly so jealous, so envious of what they did and are doing on home soil compared to what IndyCar is doing and able to do. So this isn't meant to open the show by ranting against IndyCar. Not at all. What I did see, though, and I've been a follower of Formula One for about 40 years, so it's not like I, believe it or not, I didn't just watch Drive to Survive and learn about it and say, hmm, maybe I should watch F1. But seeing where Formula One has taken itself in the U.S. since Drive to Survive came out, oh boy, this past weekend in Austin was a coronation. It was a coming out party. It was all kinds of things to see how much ground F1 has gained in the U.S. Something like, they reported something like 400,000 fans over three days. Now, granted, are we talking 400,000 unique fans, individuals, or are we talking about, which is the more realistic way to look at the number, more or less the same folks buying a ticket for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They treat, most tracks treat the day's purchases as individual. Granted, we know that 400,000 human beings did not show up at Coda last weekend, but we do know that, again, based on their numbers, you could probably add a little bit of padding to that. Uh, or assume there's some padding to that. But nonetheless, the better part of 100x thousand plus 100x thousand plus another 100x thousand all combined over three days added up to roughly 400,000 people crammed into that road course. Massive crowd, like nothing I've ever seen there. Then you look at the amount of celebrity turnout. Another thing, too, got to Couch it a little bit. In some cases, it could be a sponsor of the event or a team that has paid for Athlete X, Celebrity X to come out and see or be seen. Difference here, though, I don't care how that person got there. I don't even care about the majority of the, quote, celebrities that showed up. What I care about is the air of importance that came with them person after person after person. Even though my friend, and he is a friend, Martin Brundle, embarrassed himself, uh, especially with Megan the Stallion, uh, the Stallion. Uh, boy, that was, on a cultural level, that, that was B-A-D bad. Not funny. That was bad. But regardless of all that, let's forget some of the, the thinner takeaways. Let's go for the heavyweight takeaways. Formula One looked massive, looked important, looked like the hottest ticket on the planet. And this isn't Monaco, legendary event. Monza, legendary event. Spa, this is Circuit of the Americas. Austin, Texas. I love Austin, and I know that it's called Austin, Texas, where the track is. But if you've ever been there, you'll realize there is 0% glamour at Circuit of the Americas. All the cool stuff in downtown Austin. Nowhere to be found at Coda. So 
just saying it's not like you're at this opulent place and folks are looking around saying oh my goodness it's like we're in a dreamland no it's hot it's humid Uh, there's again it's just crammed at least on f1 weekends just saying for a place that compared to some of these world-renowned venues you'd have to say circuit of the americas completely unremarkable not a destination affair for anyone and yet they could not pack one more body in the place it seemed like so just come back to this rishi and i love your question because you have to wonder what does a drive to survive type show do for another series like indycar you mentioned imsa as well opened here by saying the folks at IndyCar almost kind of roll their eyes when it gets mentioned. When is it coming out? When's it going to happen? Do you think it's valuable? What it does is this. It gives full background on the people, gives the average fan and or someone who knows nothing about Formula One, gives folks something to latch on to and care about. So you have drivers or team principals or similar that before someone watched their very first episode, they'd never heard of, didn't know a single thing about. Watch an episode or two, even if the drama's ramped up a little bit, even if the editing's a little bit iffy in some places. I'm not talking about getting diehards to follow. We know that they do. We're currently talking. We're all diehards. Everybody in this format right now on this show is a diehard fan not talking about that it's the folks reading about this athlete this entertainer just this average human being didn't know a thing happened to see this on netflix drawn to it for whatever reason heard about it from a coworker, family member whatever and have become massive fans of the sport not because of the technology not because of the speed, not because of the many other things that call it traditional fans might lean towards or jump towards, but because we have taken something that was unknown to them, previously unknown, and gone way the heck deep behind the scenes to reveal characters. It's a character study with sport and speed and colors and cheering and human drama like real drama hey my team doesn't want me next year where else can i find to drive or is my career over and i hate this driver and i love this one over here and this team principal is a jerk and hey it's karen horner and on and on and on it's the people it's the fact that through drive to survive and i don't know if indycar fully gets this rishi This is the part that has me bristling a bit. This isn't about cars. This is about people. And within the United States, it is so embarrassing to see Formula One come here for one visit a year. No, next year it's going to become two, hopefully. But once a year, come here and becomes the biggest thing we have embarrassing IndyCar, NASCAR, every other form of racing, whether IndyCar season's over or not, doesn't matter. These are folks turning up like crazy to watch Formula One, who I don't know if they would know or care that much about IndyCar. 
But I bet you that if IndyCar made an effort and invested their marketing dollars in something that would allow folks to get to know the people behind the scenes, plus the real personalities of the drivers and team owners and strategists and engineers and all the things where you go, hey, I know these people. I do my best to tell their stories. There aren't many of us, though, right? It's like four or five reporters who wake up on a daily basis and care about IndyCar and write about it. F1, I don't know what that number is. Is it 100? 200? I don't know, but it's a lot more. We do our best, but that's not what people are going to use to get into IndyCar. I realize that there's some who said, hey, I read a Miller story or your story or whatever and learned about IndyCar and got into it. Great. Thank you. The vehicle here, though, global live streaming, readily available to anyone who has an interest. That is what has brought the inside of Formula One into people's homes has allowed them to feel like they know all the players, all their quirks, so that when they're watching the race or hearing so-and-so interviewed, they have this whole back catalog of familiarity. Oh, he just said this about that person. Uh, I remember from this episode that, boy, he really doesn't like that person. And he just spoke at the side of his mouth. That, That wasn't, everything he just said was a lie. Cool, awesome It's that kind of thing, Hrishi, where watching U.S. Grand Prix just pummel everything (laughs) that took place in the U.S. last weekend, if not the world. It just was a beautiful, beautiful referendum of how much traction Formula One has gained over the last couple years. Coda coming back onto the calendar. It's obviously COVID wreaked some havoc there and seeing how many folks turned out how many folks were wearing, I mean, everybody had on some form of shirt, whether it was a Verstappen or a McLaren or a whatever. So I don't think these other series need to find a different type of vehicle. I'd say do nothing more than just try and rip off the format, (laughs) right? Because the behind the scenes making you feel like you know everybody that you're watching in deep and meaningful ways that have nothing to do with what lap so-and-so is going to pit and when they're going to put on their reds versus their primary tires and whatnot. Like it's that thing where you go, how powerful a vehicle is IndyCar missing. We just got that full demonstration last weekend. So, Hey, uh, thanks for sending that in brother to open the show. Now let's go to Hrishi again, <laughs> touching on the uh, touching on the little Martin Brundle thing. Says, "I hear you're a freestyle podcaster. Do you have an F1 podcast for us this week?" So, for those who were maybe caught up with the Megan the Stallion and Martin Brundle thing and thought it was just her bodyguard who was being mean and not getting it, and she and others should celebrities should know who all the presenters are. Uh, first of all, they don't care. Right, They're there truly for two hours of their life, three hours, and gone. Never to be seen again for the most part. So it's not on them to study up on who the presenter is from Sky F1. It's the folks at Sky F1 to try and prearrange these interviews with folks, not just uh, basically pounce on them uh, on the grid. But yeah, so talking to her 
like she's a puppet on a string for his amusement. Uh, hey, I hear you're a freestyle rapper. Do you have a Formula One rap for us? About as dismissive a thing as you can present to somebody. Uh, forget her bodyguard. He should be happy she didn't turn around and deck him because whether you care for her music or not, uh, you want to talk to an artist that way, like they're just uh, a little uh, plaything on a string for you to pull for your amusement. Like, it's just, yeah, I that was cringy. Uh, the next time I get to speak to Martin, I will absolutely mention to him that, brother, culturally, yeah, if if you're back here next year and you see Megan or a similar artist like that, um, let me give you some tips on a better way to handle that so you don't show your ass. Uh, all right, let's go to Greg Fetchick. says, Marshall, there seemed to be an awful lot of chatter coming out of Austin about IndyCar getting more Americans involved. Even Max Verstappen had something nice to say about IndyCar. I read that. So coincidentally, Logan Sargent gets drafted into the Williams Academy. Was it just, say, a PR stunt since they happen to be here and they needed to say something nice? Or are they concerned that they're beginning to lose more drivers from their feeder series to F1? Uh, not sure about the last part, Greg, but yeah, it was interesting because wrote that, little testing story about what was coming today. And then not too long after heard from a couple uh, places that that indeed was not happening. And that he had a F one ish type opportunity come up, not to race, but just something in the F one hemisphere. And he was going to have to back out of that test. So um, how's this? I know that at racer, Logan got a lot of love. My man, Chris, Medlin, Snoop Medley Med did, I think, two stories on him, maybe. Um, so that was all good. But I mean, if I'm thinking about news to come out of Austin, does Logan Sargent's name land in the top 50 items? I have no idea. It seems like McLaren kind of stole most of the show between uh, Ricardo doing burnouts and a lap in Dale Earnhardt's old Wrangler jeans, NASCAR to uh, Lando just being generally loved by everybody at all times. Zach Brown getting a tattoo. Uh, probably run down the list of a lot of things. Danica Patrick uh, was talking with a friend yesterday. She's been a little bit of a train wreck with commentary. And wow, talk about impressed. I was so happy for her. I thought she did an excellent job. Not that my opinion matters, but just... Normally, it's not been a pleasant experience. Uh, it's almost felt like she hasn't wanted to be there, whether it was IndyCar, SRX. This felt like she was really all in. I really appreciated that. But anyways, back to your point, it seemed like there was a lot of other things that maybe stood out, Greg, is, is way more important about Logan and what was happening there. So um, maybe not the angle that at least jumped out to me. Sean Price says, I found it interesting that IndyCar drivers get roughly the same super license points as those in Formula 3. Why is that? Shouldn't they get as many or more than F2 drivers? Well, funny you should ask, Sean. <sighs> For just about as long as I've been alive and can remember, Formula 1 has not looked upon IndyCar in a very friendly, favorable, or collegial manner. Um, frankly, it's been like, if not more divisive than IndyCar NASCAR for the past however long, right? 
heated rivals in the same marketplace. Here, when we're talking about F1 and IndyCar, not exactly the same. They're open wheel, got it, but one's international, one is not. But for the most part, uh, Formula One has treated IndyCar like it is a threat and therefore not given it much. So I know we're talking about Formula One, FIA, point systems, and all kinds of stuff. IndyCar being self-sanctioned, right? IndyCar is not a uh, FIA series, FIA-governed series. So you have a little bit of a, look, you're not one of us. You're not part of us. You're not within our uh, governance. And so therefore, hey, they could say you get no points for an IndyCar championship. They can do whatever they want. I think we agree as the continually aggrieved (laughs) party that, yeah, uh, Formula One, FIA, you name it, just doesn't take us very seriously. Um, That's nothing new, my friend. When CART, the CART IndyCar series, was really raging in the mid to late 90s, Wow, Formula One was threatened, and Formula One was talking about wanting to start a global oval series, all because they wanted to try and take away anything that was unique to kart that could take away from Formula One's shine and overall specialness. So, yeah, and that's true. Like, actual published interviews saying they're looking at never went anywhere, but that they were looking at doing some form of international oval series with F1 cars, right? So that, again, let's just try and detune, defuse any and all things about IndyCar that might be uh, able to beat us in popularity or whatever else. So that's how much IndyCar pushed. uh, That's how much CART pushed Formula One back in the day. Hasn't really been that way for a while, right? We've stayed local. We haven't done any real international traveling since what, like 2013, Brazil, I think. So, been like eight years, been pretty staying close to home. Nonetheless, there's still that age old bias against us. Drivers aren't as good. Therefore, whatever positive results we might get with those drivers, not as valuable. There's also a little bit of of home team reward, right? Hey, if you're doing Formula 2, you're doing Formula 3, you're with us on our ladder. Well, not a surprise, to be honest, Sean, that they would want to give those folks more points. But I think there's been enough recognition, especially with Liberty Media taking over, Liberty now having a stake in the Meyershank Racing Team. So uh, they do indeed have real roots in IndyCar, uh, not just Formula One, I do have to wonder if there's going to be some sort of, let's just have a common sense alignment here. Truly, the person that wins the Formula Three title, even Formula Two title, like, look, I realize you're going to be very good, but let's also recognize that if you're running in a series that is uh, pretty much dead even to Formula One in terms of talented teams, and our best drivers being right there with their best drivers, is there really a need to just dumb down the points available uh, to earn a super license? 
is there, if we just wanted to ask the, the bigger question here, Sean, to close, what's the reason behind a points system to earn a super license? Here's the thing. In theory, you could have a driver, you could have a field that wasn't as strong as it was a few years ago. You're going to produce a champion, right? Even if there's a lot of cars, look, not every season in every open wheel training category is chock full of amazing talent. It's in more than possible to have a champion, runner up, you name it, where you go, yeah, you're the champ. You sure don't scare anybody. There's nobody in the top series saying, oh my gosh, watch out for when so-and-so gets here. But uh, if you win, you get whatever those points are. You're going to be on your way to a super license. It's not an infallible thing. And so, again, the whole let's try and come up with a structured points-earning system to get a super license, it's a very Formula One thing. It's a very FI thing to do that. I know that IndyCar has its own system they've put in place, but what they have that Formula One does not give itself, which is the, the real fix needed here, is that caveat, the proverbial in the best interest of the sport clause that says, hey, great, uh, this driver certainly has the talent and the record, the history, the proven success to warrant access. Uh, the whole, we're going to put up the VIP rope and put some 10 foot tall giants blocking you from getting in uh, kind of thing. Like I just, it's that thing, Sean, that just seems so old. Oh, well, this is a very exclusive club. Really? Is it? <laughs> Uh, some of the drivers are there because they are able to bring a trillion dollars, not because they're crazy talented. So let's kind of get over ourselves on that part, right? It the the whole point system to get a super license thing in F one, yeah, it's not really strictly about quality. So I appreciate IndyCar's approach, which is yeah, we we do have a little bit of a formula ourselves. We got to finish in these kind of places for us to really you know, want to give you an IndyCar license, but we're also willing to say, hey, we can see you, we know who you are. Yeah, you're going to get a pass, and you're going to come here, and you're going to drive. Um, that's the thing F1 lacks that it needs. Uh, Hank McCarthy says, is anyone looking at Jamie Chadwick for an IndyCar drive? Well, I don't know. Hank, I'd have to know what every single person is thinking in IndyCar, and although that's something I aspire towards, unfortunately, my friend, I'm not quite there yet, I can tell you that I have not heard her name mentioned as someone who should be considered. But I will be sure to forward, and I've mentioned her to Roger Penske before, uh, even in a phone call last week, but I will be sure to forward the she just won her second consecutive championship in the W Series story over to RP, just in case he did not get a chance to see it. I know that she's fairly booked up right now, but I would hope someone would consider. Uh, it's been, been interesting to read. There's one person whose Twitter handle I don't recall, but uh, somebody who feels the need or has taken it upon himself to 
criticize and downplay seemingly any woman who gets mentioned or spoken of as having potential talent or someone who should be considered for say an IndyCar drive. So yeah, still weird that in 2021, almost 2022, there are still versions of men who feel the need to belittle and diminish women, women athletes, women racers, you name it. Um, almost like it's just sport to do so. Anyway, so I don't know, Hank. I can only say I would hope so, because if you're talking about young women uh, who are as close as any others to being ready for Indy Lights or Indy Car, Jimmy Chadwick, Alice Powell, two names that should be on top of a list, any list, talking about new drivers trying to uh, find their way towards the top of the open wheel ladder here in the U.S. Uh, Ed Joris, hey, you're bringing this up here. So did you see Danica on the uh, Sky Sports F1 broadcast? Thought she added a lot to the program, held her own against the likes of Toto Wolf, Christian Horner, Jensen Button. She's known Jensen for a long time, so that helped, especially on the post-race show. Uh, it was great to hear a knowledgeable, knowledgeable American voice on the program. Thoughts? I thought if they had an interest and she had an interest, that they should make use of her talents more than just at the U.S. Grand Prix. Uh, having a woman, a woman racer, as part of the all-male analyst team, I thought that there was something pretty darn cool there. Whether her voice is American or not, that isn't what stood out to me. It was, yeah, she's bringing something real and new, and there are some cool women that they have, as part of the uh, Sky F1 broadcasting package, uh, reporters, journalists, and whatnot. Uh, so more from the, the media side than the driving side. But I thought Danica brought something that, for whatever reason, maybe it's just because she knows everybody and it's not that new or interesting doing that in IndyCar, but at least with F1, yeah, there seemed to be a real fire there that uh, I appreciated it. So well-spotted. I.I. Uh, Lemur from Reddit says, is there any talk inside the industry about changing how IndyCar presents itself for next year? It says, Code of Formula One was the fruit of a sport changing the way it talks to the audience it wants. I love that, that description there. It says, I don't think budget issues are the only reason IndyCar has failed to get younger audience. Uh, for example, commentators keep framing things from an older person's perspective, repeating the same quirky things over and over like fried chicken and ninja and Road Trip America. Uh, hard to argue. If we're talking about how, as you mentioned, IndyCar presents itself versus Formula One presents itself, certainly was a feel. The We Race as One package, for example, I thought that was astounding. If you happen to see that as part of the, the pre-race uh, video presentations there. Granted, a couple of older drivers, obviously, in Fernando and Kimi, um, but for the most part, it is a younger series. Hey, guess what? We have a lot of younger drivers, too. Um, but, I mean, there's just a lot of a lot of things going on here. I know we're talking a lot about Formula One, but, again, it was the big race that happened last weekend, and there's a lot of, uh, of potential areas where IndyCar could learn or improve. <sighs> So you have an international series like Formula One, which means that not only are the teams and drivers from all over the place, but 
the series travels everywhere. So there are a lot of cultural slices that make up what Formula One happens to be. We aren't that. I do realize that, of course, we have drivers from many nations. Our reigning champion is from Spain. Uh, one of our front runners is from Mexico. And we've got others who are from here and there and everywhere. Awesome. Holland, Sweden, just keep going, right? All kinds of great drivers from all over the place. We are appealing to a single audience, though, by and large, that being the North American audience. I realize that IndyCar is broadcast in many places, not discounting any of those fine folks, just saying that the good old U.S. of A., that is the massive, that's the bulk of the audience. Is the average American IndyCar fan wanting to hear We Races 1? Is the average American fan wanting to see at every event a pre-race moment with the drivers, uh, some taking a knee like Colin Kaepernick, some wearing Black Lives Matters t-shirts or, again, similar social activism type things, whether it is sexuality, whether, again, all the things that folks are trying to make more inclusive and or normalized in our world. Is that something that in North America, IndyCar thinks it is going to be able to do? Name the region in the country or the state or the city. And is that something that would go everywhere? Absolutely not. 100% not. So I don't disagree with what you're saying about Formula One changing how they present themselves, knowing that, again, they, with 20-plus races per year, it's a little, it's cultural slices. They're here, they're there. It's a lot of different vibes of where they go, right? Authoritarian, libertarian, wide open, lockdown, you name it. It's a little bit easier when you're doing one weekend in Russia, one weekend in Japan, one weekend here. It's another thing when you are doing all of them in the same spot. And depending on whether it is a red state or blue state, red city, blue city, um, culturally, I'm not surprised here, I.I. Lemur from Reddit, as to why IndyCar has played it pretty much right down the middle. Of course, they have the Race for Equality and Change program, which is trying to, again, create a positive thing where there's really never been an initiative uh, in IndyCar before. Got that. Love it, obviously. Supported it since day one. Written about it since day one. All those things. I'm all in there. That's nothing new for me. But regardless... Are we a country right now that would be open to IndyCar taking a page from Formula One, We Races One? Um, I don't know if IndyCar feels like it could survive doing that. I also don't know if the folks who run IndyCar, and I should say own IndyCar, would really lean in to such a notion, fearing that it would turn off half the potential ticket buyers, half the potential viewers who might have a different ideology. Even if it's an ideology that doesn't seem particularly modern or inclusive, 
what's the old uh what's the old famous line from Michael Jordan about why he never did any political ads, never did any real activism or anything during his NBA career as a player? Uh, what was his line about Republicans buy basketball shoes too, right? No doubt that he was a man chock full of opinions. Was he going to step out and speak on them and risk cutting his money in half? Absolutely not. And I'm not necessarily agreeing with his decision. I understand his decision. Not everybody's cut out to do that. So, again, I love that Formula One is doing this. I'm not saying that everyone who follows Formula One loves it, but it's something that feels unique to them that they're able to do that while IndyCar could certainly do that, I just don't know if the current owners would ever consider going down that path of trying to, whether it's the social issues or just strictly appeal to a younger generation and whatnot. I think that there's so many older fans still there that there's a similar fear of, okay, if we start treating everything like we're talking to 20 to 25-year-olds, framing everything for a younger person's perspective, that same kind of fear. Do we lose half or more of our audience? So I don't have an answer for you. Just saying I understand that there's a pretty delicate concern here. While IndyCar is doing well, could certainly be doing a lot better, certainly needs to gain new fans, younger fans, how do you do that without the fear or, or the strong possibility of losing the ones that have been here and helped get it to where it is? I don't have an answer. I wish I did. Maybe you do. I, I, Lemur, maybe others have ideas. Send those in. Again, I'm never hard to find. At Marshall Pruitt on Twitter, Marshall Pruitt podcast page on Facebook. Uh, if you want to send me an email. Uh, there's a contact page on marshallpruittpodcast.com. If you got ideas, send them in. Uh, I will certainly pass on all the ones that I think would gain any traction uh, with IndyCar's ownership and leadership. Uh, let's see. Sam Rasmussen, you got a question about if F1 wanted to do more traction in the U.S., um, who would pay for it, and so on and so forth. Uh, I've never known Formula One to pay for the privilege of a track improving itself. Uh, it's usually upon the track to make itself better. Uh, we're going to move away from Formula One. We're going to go to Jerome Segua. And I hope I didn't murder your last name, Jerome. If I did, tell me how to unmurder it next time. This is MP, first-time questioner here. I love it, love it. When we get folks who are sending in their first questions, please let me know when you do, even your second or third. It says uh, you had... Race engineer and damper expert Olivier Boisson here a couple weeks ago, we talked about shocks slash dampers and how they're unregulated. They're the same thing. So pick a word, whatever you prefer, Jerome, shocks or dampers. Uh, it's the same thing, uh, how they were unregulated. Can you do an article or interview someone on this subject? Uh, what companies provide them? What types of dampers? Who within the team works on them? Uh, and shock dyno graphs would be interesting. Well, they certainly would, Jerome. Um, this topic, and I'm making an assumption here, uh, I'm guessing you're a newer fan to IndyCar maybe, um, wrote about this certainly when this became a thing, when the new formula came out back in 2012. So 
I don't know, might be worth a little bit of Googling to see if any of that content is still alive on the internet somewhere, but also do realize that there are new fans to the series all the time. Learn about this, want to know more. Um, doing a bit of a Shocks 101 story just out of nowhere would be a little bit weird. So maybe with more ideas on, hey, could you do an article explaining this uh, and that, what are the things you want to know about IndyCar? And I'm not talking about what is an IndyCar, uh, but like, hey, dampers are unregulated. Well, they can't be totally unregulated. Um, what are the limitations? There are some limitations. What are they? Um, who works on them? Well, again, uh, engineer would be the person doing that. Uh, damper engineer. Granted, there's not always a dedicated damper engineer within a team, but uh, that's the general tag given to the person working on them. Uh, dinographs, I'm sure we could get some. They would be generic, not of what you're actually seeing on dampers that are going on to Indy cars and being used. But you know, if this is something where there were enough topics to come together to warrant doing it, Jerome, uh, I could probably find time to do that later in the year, December-ish um, on Racer. So maybe some folks will send in more ideas or uh, start a list and get that list to me, and then maybe we can do that. little sidebar here. <sighs> Entering into a crazy couple of weeks, y'all. So not any of that's bad, but just sharing the fact that today was, I think we were gone six and a half, seven hours, three different appointments. Tomorrow we've got an appointment, one or two on Wednesday, a couple, two or three on Thursday. Not sure if we're going to do the one on Friday because it feels like that might be too much, but um, really busy time on the home front with everything related to the uh, cancer fight and the mobility fight with my wife. Uh, things continue to go well. I appreciate all of you who ask on a regular basis, but uh, this is just not something that is like a flu that uh, you get over and are you feeling better. It's, it's something that is it's a long, long-term thing. And then there's a lot of crazy new stuff that has come in recently work-wise. So on top of uh, regular stuff daily for racer.com, I uh, just got two big magazine commissions for the next issue of Racer and a fairly decent commission uh, for a new book um, that I will be one of the contributing authors in. So all positive, all amazing. Um, oh, man, that's a lot of work. Uh, also just found out that my old race car, my old Scion from my team that I last ran like a decade ago, that has been at a friend's, uh, he is moving. And so I need to get that and find a new home for it um, and some other stuff and clear out uh, storage and do all kinds of stuff. So ah! <laughs> ah, it's going to be a crazy couple of weeks at least, y'all. So, uh, yeah, uh I appreciate you, and I appreciate your understanding that if indeed a podcast does not come in on its exact normal expected time, uh, it's not for laziness. It's for really good reason. All right, let's get back to your goodies here. J.J. Gertler, so what's new from Barber? Call Kirkwood did a wheelie all the way down the front straight. Uh, Nico Hulkenberg was fine after being told that the track runs counterclockwise. Uh, since he didn't have his own ride, James Hinchcliffe borrowed someone else's car to pee in. Uh, how funny. Uh, let's see. Heard that, I think, 
Kirkwood had an off, but it wasn't major. But other than that, I don't think there was a whole lot that was really extra remarkable from today's test. Uh, was super happy to see, obviously, David Malukas going very, very quickly. Um, let me roll in a question here from Kurt Pose. Met Kurt, by the way. Uh, he was one of the corner workers inside Turn 11 at Long Beach. Got to uh, meet him uh, last month. So, hey, Kurt, thanks for uh, sending this in as well. This rolls into JJ's item here. He says, on testing days, with best lap times being pretty meaningless as each car is working on its own program, do teams and drivers ever try to trim the car out or do something like that to get in a hot one so their name can lead the headlines? Would there be value in that to sponsors? It also says best wishes to my wife. Thanks, Kurt. Yes. So interesting. This is maybe the most fun part to come from today's test. And I just share this because it's, I saw Kurt's question come through. I'm like, oh, it's a great one. It's perfect timing. So push to pass is something that is available during testing. Private testing public testing, you name it, all kinds of testing on road and street courses. It's not something that lights up on the timing and scoring system, though, for all to see. And so there's a question of when someone goes fast that maybe wasn't expected to go fast. Maybe someone was slow in the morning, and folks might think, well, maybe that driver isn't super great. And then, boom, in the afternoon, they're P1, P2, towards the front instead of towards the back. Did they use push to pass on that lap? Did they use overtake to get that extra 40-ish horsepower and put down a faster lap than what the car would do without that little punch of turbo boost added on top of the normal amount? That question was raised today. And... Was David Malukas on push to pass? I have no idea. But I do know that since this was his first IndyCar test, certainly something that some others there might not have expected him to be P1. Am I questioning whether he did the lap without, with or without? No. Again, I have no idea. I don't really care. I just do find it curious, though, Kurt and JJ, that, yes, indeed, there is value in leading the headlines for some. And I always wonder, I do wonder why every team, every entry on a private test day like this does not make an effort for a single lap to do a overtake slash push to pass fast lap. And the reason being is coming out of tests like this, that's the question among everybody on pit lane. Did they? Didn't they? Who did? Who didn't? Well, we didn't, but I bet they did. And now you're lying. I know you did. And but Man, wouldn't it be crazy if everyone just did it so that we knew <laughs> everybody at least put in one lap with maximum boost, everything they could have? So at least you can then say, although that one lap is a little bit of an outlier, right? It's not a, quote, normal lap. At least you have every entry with one so that we know if all the fastest laps are basically done with push to pass, at least you can get a good feel for how they all stack up because they're all equal in that regards instead of possibly being 
less than equal. So, yes, Kurt, uh, for absolute no question, no doubt, no anything, yes, there is value. Do I think David Malukas would have needed to do a lap with push to pass? And again, I'm not saying he did. I have no knowledge. But would he need to? I don't think so. Uh, he's going to be an IndyCar. Uh, safely assume he's going to be an IndyCar with the team he just tested with, Dale Coin Racing. Um, financially, they're in a good place, right? We know that uh, HMD, that's a successful business with the ability to fund a driver like David, uh, the family trucking business. Like, There's no real questions here, right? The kid's good, very fast. We know that for sure. So just saying, motive-wise... I would find no reason to say, hey, kid, hit that button, get that extra power, and put up this uh, bogey lap for everyone else to try and match. But to your point, Kurt, yes. I might have mentioned this on the show before. I don't remember if I mentioned the team. Uh, I'll leave the team out because, yeah, I'll just leave the team out. But I remember being awoken seven, eight years ago by uh, IndyCar team manager, not livid, yelling, but like really agitated because I'd filed whatever testing report the night, you know, whatever later PM the previous night went up then or got posted then. They woke up in the morning and saw it a couple hours ahead of me out in California. Either they forgot because they seemed to know the time difference before or just didn't care. I had forgotten to put my phone on silent and it goes off at whatever time, 5 a.m. or something like some ridiculous time. Um, and so I'm in a stupor and they're just on the rev limiter. Marshall, your story. It says so-and-so is fastest. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Hello. Uh, yeah. Huh? What? Well, we were fastest, and our sponsors just livid. What? Well, you wrote that so-and-so is fastest and did a whatever time point such-and-such such seconds, and we were actually faster. Okay. Um, uh, we do write that all times are unofficial because this was an unofficial test. This is, or, right, this is a private test, so not everybody, well, granted, a lot of folks do share their lap times, but uh, I try not to go off of what the individual teams say because you got to question a little bit of their motives. So I tend to go with what comes down from either the series or the engine manufacturers. Uh, and the engine manufacturers often try and, you know, be cool with each other because, you know, uh, they have to share the same space. And sometimes one brand's team has the test. Oh, actually has the test day like it's theirs and they let others come in and share the test day and so sometimes they'll kind of huddle up and share their fastest laps with each other so i tend to try to go to that more neutral route and what i posted is what i got well our data system showed that we were point such and such faster than what you wrote and it really makes a big difference and i'm going wow again it's like crack of dawn holy crap, and this is like, 
I don't remember when the test was, but it wasn't like the week before the season was going to start. And, oh, my God, you've embarrassed us. It was like I'm not really finding, Kurt, the, the oh, my God, button that you've hidden here. But, okay, uh, I'm receiving it at this hour of the morning and you're impassioned, please. Well, we can send it to you and show you that, you know, our number is the accurate one and, and yours yours is wrong. And I'm like, yeah, let's park that for just a second. Mine isn't wrong, okay? It's not mine. I didn't make it up. I wasn't there with a stopwatch, and I was a little slow in the stopwatch, and oops, my bad. I'm taking the times given to me by a trusted source, an impartial source. If you have data that shows differently, and that occasionally happens, the ECU data versus the onboard data, independent data acquisition system sometimes there can be a mild variance in a tenth of a second here or not so if you've got something on your cosworth data system that is showing something different than the ecu data which i used and again for all entries so again there's no bias here but if you're really dead set and telling me your number is the right number and it shows you were p1 and that headline that you were P1 would make the world a difference to your sponsor. And you can verify it and show, because, again, I know would know. Um, okay. And so they sent through the data and saw that, yes, according to their data, they were a, whatever, a tenth faster, and it would have moved them ahead of. And so I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, my gosh. This really, truly is something. And so for reasons I don't fully understand, and this is with a sponsor that had been with the team for a little while, so I don't know if there was a real threat of the sponsor going away, but I think what happened, Kurt, was they told the sponsor they were fastest. And then our story using, again, independent but quality data that showed they were second or whatever just created some sort of crazy problem. And so I think I seem to recall saying, I'll do this once. I'm not taking a second call about this again. And just so you know, I'm using that independent ECU data agreed upon from both sides. And so just to be clear, if you end up having something that shows you were faster or slower in the future, good on you. I'm going with this. And we put that to bed. But holy cow, Kurt, that really did stand out as a, oh, I'm going to triple check <laughs> the lap times every time uh, on these private test reports. And I still get those calls. I didn't get one today, but I guarantee you get a call from a driver saying, dude, you got me at a this point that, and I did a this point this. Um, what the hell? And again, you kind of run through the same explanation, but... Nobody ever wants to be presented as slow, slower than what they believe they were. That's not a big surprise. Um, last little thing here to mention, JJ, on today's test. There's one driver at that event who garnered the most interest from the global media. There's also one driver at that test who really had to be fought tooth and nail to even say a word about the test. So, hmm. Uh, my pal, Chris Medlin from racer fresh off of covering a formula one race in Austin was on a plane and landed last night, 
uh, in Alabama to go to the test and cover the test. And he ended up standing around all day just to get a couple minutes to write a somewhat short story. Um, and I'll leave, there's actually a little bit more to that, uh, but I'll leave that out because that's uh, Chris's uh, experience, not mine. So, yeah, uh, I'll tell you this. Happy for Malukas and what looks like is going to be a positive experience with coin, assuming all that gets confirmed. It's going to get, going to get confirmed. Um, happy to see Kirkwood and Devlin DeFrancesco look like Devlin had a really strong afternoon uh, and, and put up a quick lap there. Uh, happy for our man Hunter Ray, who seemed to settle right in and, and be quick just immediately. So, yeah, uh, a good day for IndyCar. Uh, why don't we go to Jeremy Davis, MP. Is 2022 a make-or-break season for Alexander Rossi at Andretti? Any chance Penske is still eyeing him uh, for when the current contract with Andretti is up? Man, that's a great question. I feel like you're onto something here. I don't know if I would say make or break for Rossi in terms of career or Andretti or anything like that. More interest elsewhere. Um, he can't afford to have another not great season. That's massive, obvious statement alert right there. <laughs> I'm by no means the first person to think it, say it, or whatever else. Uh, I might have even been led there a little bit in your question, my friend. But, yeah, uh, mentioned this before in the show. I don't mind mentioning it again. This past year or two have been rough for Alexander from a shine standpoint. Someone who we absolutely thought was going to, if not be headed to Penske, just be among the most coveted free agents on the good old planet. Um, it's been tough, man. Um, been tough watching him go from someone who we expect to be perennial contender in the IndyCar championship. Now the last two seasons, not so much. Got to overstate the obvious once again. And I realize this actually gets forgotten a little bit. Um, this is more of, of you know fans not knowing it or, or wanting to forget it. But talent doesn't just disappear. Alexander Rossi, who is winning a bunch of races, vying for championships, uh, coming home top three in the standings and such, like that guy hasn't disappeared that guy hasn't forgotten how to drive. His race engineer, Jeremy Millis, hasn't forgotten how to engineer. And run down the list. Um, there is no forgetting or loss. could say bad luck for sure. Like the guy has just had an extraordinary amount of that uh, over the last two seasons. If we look back towards the end of 2020, Jeremy, for sure, after somewhat terrible open to the year first half, reeled off, what, four consecutive podiums? Uh, I know the end is St. Pete for him. End of the season at St. Pete in 2020 was ugly. Could have won that race for sure. But 
team had a hard start to 2020. Took them a while to get things turned around. Colton Herta being the outlier who was strong pretty much the whole time. But anyways, thinking that ninth place in the championship was never going to happen again. Well, that is true, except for he finished 10th this past season. And yet, I don't know why, but hit the reset button, hit the no more cartoon anvils, bad juju, you name it button, make all that disappear. Every reason to believe that guy is going to be on the podium to start the season next year, be on the podium multiple times the first half of the season, and a title contender. What was rough about his most recent season, and this is just the part that speaks to your question, right? This is the thing where very, like, crazily critical folks in the Nick Paddock think this way. Hey, and I just pulled up this this past season's result. Hey, ninth at Barber wasn't, you know, everything you wanted, but ninth, okay, but then 21st at St. Pete. Eighth at Texas won. 20th at Texas too. Know that there's a crash and all that stuff again, but still just looking at the cold results, not the reasons why the cold results. Seventh IMS road course, 29th Indy 500, seventh at Detroit one 13th. Not so bad. Detroit two seventh road America fifth at mid Ohio. Awesome. Nashville P 17 IMS road course again, fourth gateway 17th. Portland 2nd, Laguna 25th, Um, Long Beach 6th. That's the thing that we haven't really seen in his career before that will cause the most ready-to-dismiss-a-person paddock you can imagine. Like, that's the crazy thing. Even though we know... It was a year plagued by bad luck. Folks are going to look at that. Oh, man, you were third in 2019 in the standings, won a couple races. Haven't won a race since then. We're ninth in 2020, 10th now in 2021. Ooh, boy, what's wrong? What is no longer working? I don't buy into that, that there's anything wrong with him. Uh, or the team, or the anything else. But, coming back to closing your question here, Jeremy, I think if he were to have another season like this, even if he wins a race, but if he has that up and down and up and down, and even if the down's 100% not his fault, <sighs> I think it's going to make it really hard to have the Penske's and Ganassi's really potentially taking a look at him uh, other than hopefully staying with his Andretti Autosport team. But yeah, a guy maybe more than any other driver going into next season who needs to have things go normally for him. If it's just normal, that guy's top three, four, or five in the standings and we are forgetting about the last two years being abnormal. Anything other than that, things are going to be tough uh, for him to get picked up elsewhere. 
I mean, like Air McLaren SP jumps out as a place that might be interested for sure. But other bona fide long-term members of the big three other than Andretti, so fickle, so ready to dismiss. Mm. Robbie Berggren, we're, we're staying in a zone here. Marshall, prayers to you and your wife and the cats. Thanks, man. So how do you think Simon Pagano's time at Penske will be looked at? Having three winless seasons when your teammates all won at least one at Penske is strange, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Hopefully my exhale just said a lot of things without a lot of words. Yeah. Weird. If you want to extend this even farther. Um, streaky. Penske has had two streaky drivers on its full-time payroll for a number of years, that being Will Power and Simon Pagano. And the part that's weird, truly weird, is that in, what is it, uh, 12 years with Penske? Will, Will Simon. I was about to say Will Simon. Call the show my unpolished turd because I leave in all the, the stupid mistakes. Will Power has a single championship. For those who followed closely the beginning of the previous decade, there was a possibility for him to have two or three or maybe even more. But he just kept making mistakes, kept getting taken to school by Dario Franchitti. Will is a one-time IndyCar champion, uh, having lost out on many others. Simon, interesting. I realize that of his, what, uh, I need to count it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years at Penske, he won one championship and finished runner-up on two other occasions. And that can't be dismissed. Those runner-ups are important in his overall Penske legacy. But what's really weird are the years where he was nowhere close to being in title contention and, frankly, just not really a threat, not only for wins in the title, but just not even within his own team. That's the part that's going to be hard to reconcile. Like, if I had to, if he asked me to write an autobiography tomorrow, oh, hey, I'd turn it down. But if I were to say yes, this would be the source of nonstop arguments over being honest and transparent about what went wrong, what didn't go right uh, during those years. Opening, coming in, having finished fifth for the team we know today as Aaron McLaren SP. One of the smallest teams in the series. He finished fifth, third, and then fifth again in the standings for a midfield team, what was truly like a midfield team, punching so far above their weight. Goes to Penske in the first season with his trusty race engineer, Ben Bretzman, who's all kinds of awesome, and couldn't find his ass with both hands. Like, really a surprise. No wins. 11th in the standings. Like, truly. Three full-time seasons in the modern-day NTT IndyCar series. I know that he was in Champ Car beforehand. But if we're just talking modern era and what he did, his first three seasons, full seasons, 
in IndyCar 2012 through 2014, never finished lower than fifth with a team that had, by comparison to Penske, no money, no anything, no business being that good, but they were. Gets to Penske, has everything in the world, has his worst season ever. Just bizarre. Think about a Joseph Newgarden coming into Penske in his very first season. What did he do? Won that championship, y'all. So that right there, really hard to ignore, right? Came from another midfield team, just like Simon, Ed Carpenter Racing. And again, punching way above their weight, Joseph was a badass, absolute badass, right? Shows up, big team, all the trimmings, all the budget, all the everything. Keep in mind what, at Carpenter, he'd finished like seventh, I think, for one or two times in a row. Then I think he was fourth in his final season with them. Simon was fifth, right, for a similar team. So I'm just saying, nearly identical stories. Simon shows up in his first season, is nowhere. Like, is he going to even get asked back the following year? Joseph, championship. Um, really weird, Robbie, to try and process what happened here. I'll just close on this. I have to look at the fact that what happened with Simon in the last couple of seasons at Penske, that's what stands out to me, unfortunately. I know that he won the championship. I know that he won the Indy 500. Uh, I know, again, right, like some amazing things while there. The really strange thing, though, is over the last two seasons, and I know what, coming into this season, maybe even 2020 as well, he'd said, I'm changing up what I do. I'm going to be more carefree. I'm going to take more risks. I'm going to, like, I'm just going to balls out, no more highly critical strategy and I'm going to think my way towards the title. I'm just going to be an unbridled animal and it didn't work. I know that he tried multiple approaches to try and get more out of himself and it just didn't happen. Really strange. And so the thing that saddened me here is that to close his time at Penske Uh, He started being feasted upon by his teammates, Uh, whether it was Newgarden blasting by and banging wheels or power multiple times, uh, just being pretty rough and disrespectful. There's a real, I don't know if you want to call it great white mentality here of like, well, that that's the vulnerable one. That's the, that's the smaller great white uh, we're going to go ahead and start taking bites out of it internally because, yeah, you're you're part of our little clan here, but uh, we don't see you as equal or really capable of fighting back, so we're just going to bully you. Like That's the thing that was going on. That just makes me sad um, to know that the guy was once the number one driver at Penske, to then see that by the end, even his own teammates were looking at him as something, uh, as prey. So, this is why I love this Meyer Shank racing turn for him. 
and cannot wait to see if we get that old Pagano back and shows us that. That guy's been here all along. Maybe he's just better, happier, more productive, something like that, in a smaller to mid-sized team where he has to play a greater role and can maybe have greater influence on the outcome of things. Uh, where do we go next? Daniel Summersgill says, Aaron McLaren SP rolled out running three cars full-time next season, but have they indicated they may run, uh, or but have indicated they may run a third car at some rounds? Says the Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan strategy of running different drivers to evaluate seemed to be successful. Says, will Aaron McLaren SP do a similar scheme uh, to select a driver for 2023? Great question, Daniel. I don't know. It's one that I should certainly ask uh, Zach Brown about. Um, I do realize that Nico Hulkenberg, quote, asked to test the car, and they did test him. Do I think they would run him if they thought there was no chance of holding on to him? No. Do I think that they're just so nice that they're willing to go spend whatever that number is, um, right? It's not cheap. Tires, track rental, engine miles, travel for the crew, fuel, blah, blah, blah. Like, right? This is not a, hey, could you come over and help me move the couch, <laughs> dear next-door neighbor type favor. This is one that has, this is a five-figure, a serious five-figure, and I guess if they really wanted to, you could probably make it a six-figure test, but... uh this is a real ask. And so do I think they would do such a thing without there being any possibility of him coming back, Daniel? No. That'd be dumb. Um, also with the fact that Hulkenberg really didn't want this seriously promoted or didn't really want to get uh, too much to talking to folks about it. Like, you know, I'm um, just saying the return on investment would not be described as high. So... It would make a lot of sense for me for Aaron McLaren SP to do this just for the sake of doing it. Do I think they would throw different drivers through? I like the idea. I don't know how much that fits their general approach to things. They tend to be a little bit more buttoned up. Like the trying things out in public, not so much what I've seen Zach and company do. So while I like the idea, I don't know if I'd get a positive, yeah, we, we might do that from them. I don't know if there'd be a real, quote, evaluation as well. They might have a couple drivers they'd want to see in the car. I don't know if all of that would be strictly to get a feel for them in IndyCar. Could there be something else they might want to do with those drivers, whether it's F1 or who knows what else? Again, I uh, don't know, but uh, let me try and ask Daniel and see if I can get an answer. Uh, let's see. Brian Haywood. Say very nice things about my wife and prayers for her. Thank you, Brian. Um, also says to give the cats a belly rub. Well, Rocky just jumped up and scared the poop out of me and uh, kind of, I, I think, scent marked me on the back of my head before jumping down. So I think that means he owns me in his head. 
Actually, I think he believes he owns me at all times, but we'll leave that alone. Uh, you asked, what are the odds we were going to see David Malukas in any car full-time next year? I'll go ahead and say 100%. It says, do you think this Hulkenberg test was just a one-off? Or do you think it might see him on the grid in St. Pete? Can't tell you whether it's going to be a one-off. I can tell you that if I were Aero McLaren SP, I would not have a third car on the grid at St. Pete I would not have a third car on the grid anywhere before the Indy 500. Uh, unless, of course, again, we're talking about a third driver for the Indy 500. Is that a Montoya or similar? And you want to have them do a little warm-up at the Indy GP. But I'm talking about really, truly putting a third car program in place. That part-time thing to run however many times throughout the season. I would not put that on the grid before we got to the month of May. Um they're going after championships. They saw this year maybe a little bit of surprise to them as well that they were as competitive right out of the box with Pato. They saw that they were capable of going after a title this year. Obviously Felix had a Felix Rosenquist had a rough start to the season. Certainly left Pato in a bit of a performance island in that regard, but Knowing what they were able to just do, the number one piece of advice, do not complicate yourselves. I realize that you could maybe have a Hulkenberg or some other great talent in a third car that could do something for you. I got it. Um, This is something where clarity of greater purpose is absolutely something that needs to be maintained here, Brian. Do not busy yourself with trying to be a great three-car team before you have become a great two-car team. And they were not a great two-car team last year. They had greatness with a number five program with Pato. More often than not, but not enough, obviously, because they didn't win the championship. Uh, Infrequently with the seven-car with Felix, but it did come on stronger towards the end of the year. This is not the time. This is why I fully understand and appreciate Zach's comments about it ain't going to be next year. And I really do hope they stick to that. Even if they have a ton of money come their way, um, they have too many things they need to improve and refine as evidenced by what Alex Pillow was just able to do uh, to be first for pretty much the full season but a guy who just could not scare out of the top three, four, or five at almost every single round. Also consider what Joseph Newgarden did. Joseph had a brutal open to the season. Big mistake. Finished more or less last. Huge hole to dig out of. And had some more big issues along the way, right? Almost winning at Road America. Gearbox issue. Finishes near the tail end of the the field. Um, he was able to fight his way back from DFL, dead freaking last, basically, to finish second in the championship, overcoming Pato, who did not have a great run over the last couple of rounds. I uh, would say, again, Long Beach, certainly not his fault, getting hit from behind, stupid move. We've been over that uh, as well. Not his fault, but nonetheless, I would think think they would know that barring that third Indy 500 effort 
Um, wait till we get into June before you really consider how much you want to do with a third car because all your energies need to go into the two that are full-time. Uh, where do we go next? Uh, oh, you also mentioned uh, you love the story about uh, Matt and Connor Swan getting their Indy 500 rings. Um, mentioned any other father and son combos working in any car aside from the Andretti's. Uh, well, the Hurtas. That's uh, that's one for sure. Father son. I mean, there's you know, kind of father daughter. Um, Brian Barnhart and his daughter, who uh, part of the Andretti Autosport PR communications team. Um, who else am I forgetting? I mean, we've seen it in the past. Mark Robinson, who did Firestone's PR, uh, his son Mitch, I believe. Um, and is there a Cooper that I'm forgetting? Maybe was involved as well. Um, we've got brothers with the Julian brothers, uh, Anton at McLaren and, uh, Blair at Ganassi. Uh, who else? We've had the Fife brothers, Neil and Dale Fife, uh, worked with Dale, never Neil, but yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but yeah, I did love that. And Swanee truly, when I say one of my oldest friends, genuinely one of my oldest friends love that. Give him grief as often as I can. Because that's what friends do. But truly, like, love that guy with all my heart and his family. So, yeah, that was a cool story. When uh, he just sent me a little text telling me about it, I'm like, all right. Uh, world's got to know about this. Uh, let's see. Ta-ta-ta. All right, Thomas from Twitter, at Tom, T-H-O-M-B-89. So, serious question. If Hulkenberg joins McLaren for next season, will the official hashtag be hashtag Hulk spam or hashtag spam Hulk? Uh, you're trying to get me in trouble with the team again, aren't you? Um, I don't know, but I do love both. So I'm going to say yes to all. All right, let's see. Uh, where are we at time-wise? All right, about an hour and 20-ish. Let's try and go for 10 or 15 more minutes, and then uh, we'll go ahead and say farewell. <clears throat> Vincent1701, how are you, Vincent? I appreciate you and your wife and everything you send in here and just your general continuing support for IndyCar. Says, what do you think is the was the best IRL livery? Says, my favorite was Scott Sharp's Delphi car. Hmm, best. Wow, that's a lot of liveries to consider. Don't laugh, because I know that. Well, again, we all have our own little things, but even though, well, granted, it was very easy to see in full detail. Uh, I always thought Jack Miller, Doctor Jack Miller, the racing dentist. I always thought his crest sponsored car in the red white and blue i always thought that just looked delightful am i saying it was the best i don't know but i always liked it but again maybe it's because it was just really easy to see at all points in time but uh his always stood out i liked that quite a bit um can i go ahead and vote eddie cheever's uh indy 500 rachel's potato chip livery is the best did i say best maybe maybe i meant worst um i'm gonna have to give that one a thought more of a thought than I have right now. Maybe, maybe, because I can't think of a ton that really jump out. And I'm talking real like IRL era, not even when it was called the Indy Racing League, but we had, you know, half or more of the kart teams come in before the series was officially renamed the IndyCar Series in 20, uh, 2005. But real like IRL era, i got to give that some thought. Maybe the, uh, again, I don't know if it was the best, but the, the Reebok? sponsored cars 
I thought those looked pretty good. Um, should I give a nod to a car that I worked on? Uh, one of mine, the uh, El- Eliseo Salazar FUBU-sponsored G-Force Oldsmobile from 1999. Oh, my goodness. Anyways, uh, that's a great question, Vincent. I don't know. There are a lot of stinkers. So maybe that's why not a lot of them jump out to me as being amazing. Uh, let's see. Matt McDonald. Oh, that's a lot of words here. Uh Let's see, last couple weeks you're talking about the new chassis formula and how batteries will add some weight. And, oh boy, the car's already heavy with aero screens. As my recollection is there have been several safety improvements to the DW12 since its inception beyond the aero screen, uh, thickening the walls around the driver to prevent suspension parts from puncturing. Uh, But all those are more or less bolt-on additions to an existing chassis. Seems like it would be feasible to include those safety features without so much of a weight penalty when designing from the ground up. True, 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 true. One little just quick note here, and everything you mentioned is accurate, Matt. Uh, but as these innovations have been added, and I don't know if maybe innovations a little strongly worded, as these new layers of safety improvements have become evident and needed, while maybe, quote, bolt-on in the moment in some instances these have all been incorporated into the manufacturing process for any new tubs that have been made. Um, if we remember, what was it? 2013, was it? At Fontana, no, at, uh, at Sonoma. I think it was a crash between our man Bourdais and Joseph Newgarden. Uh, Joseph's gearbox punched the side of the tub. Seb's tub, was it? Or do I have it? other way around i think i have it the other way around i think it was seb's gearbox that puncture hit the side of joseph's tub and the wall kind of flexed in and and hurt him um that same thing happened at a crash at fontana next race or one or two races after Uh, again at fontana when our our man the late and beloved justin wilson uh same kind of exact thing uh the side of the tub on the right side got punched in and flexed in and hurt his leg and hurt himself and so they put in more xylon anti-intrusion padding in there and the the rim of the tub around the top was fortified and you know there's been a number of things done for sure they've all added weight though to a car that was already heavier than expected uh so as you go on here you say so should we really expect the new cars to definitely be significantly heavier and is there a target weight yet uh for dollar design to or um, is that part of what the 2023 spec testing trying to determine? And also say thanks for your hard work. Thanks, man. Um, so here's the thing. If to make a car stronger and safer, you need to add extra, I'll just say, material. Um, even if they've been bolted on or bonded, and they're not truly bolted, but bonded in or bonded on to the existing tub, unless there is some sort of new material technology that has come along that offers the same amount of protection through a different or lighter material, we're talking about still needing that extra material. So whether it's designed in from the outset or bonded on afterwards, we're talking about, hey, paper grocery bag. And we've just put two watermelons in the bag well if you try and pick it up the little paper handles are going to rip off the side of the bag and the watermelons are going to break through the bottom so you double bag 
maybe you even triple bag because of the force you're trying to contain and prevent from piercing through the bottom of the bag and ripping the handles off. No, paper bags aren't that thick, but just the general premise of, hey, what kind of forces are we trying to prevent intruding, in this case, breaking through, falling out the bottom? What are we trying to prevent? How many layers do we need here? Single bag, double bag, triple, what is it? Well, unless there's some different new material, as I mentioned, uh, we're still talking about layers. We're still talking about thicknesses. And the weight from those multiple layers of whatever it might be, whether it's xylon or something else, uh, I don't know how you get past that, Matt. Um, and my, I'm not saying that so much back to you, but just more of a, if we are seeing that we can break through the side of a tub or pierce through with suspension or do all kinds of things, if there's a lot of stuff we're trying to make sure never gets to the driver, you're going to tend to go towards something that is more fortified, more armor plating in a sense than thin aluminum foil trying to do the job. And so that's where the weight comes from. Will, would they be able to, of course, shed some of that weight from not having to bond on top of an existing tub? Sure. Of course. Thing here though, and I know we're just talking about the tub, but, the weight that we're going to be dealing with elsewhere with the battery, just call it the overall kinetic energy recovery system, all the other cooling systems that are going to be needed, like the everything else to support the motor and the curves stuff, that's going to be the part that you go, okay, we're probably going to need bigger brakes. We're going to have more mass to stop, more speed to decrease, probably going to need beefier drive shafts, half shafts, uh, suspension. Like, you know, this car is getting heavier. It's going to be going faster. It's going to have to be, you know, it's already pretty rugged. Don't get me wrong, but this is the part where I don't know how everything exactly reconciles, my friend. I've heard, and this is something that I definitely need to get more info about because it's one of the subjects for uh, uh, the next issue of Racer is how they want to manage some of this weight. And is it going to super magnesium, titanium, everything, um, which is going to cost a lot and not just to get that new part, but also when you have that big crash and you got to replace it and you got to replace it and you got to replace it. Like these things are no joke, man. So some of these things I'm hoping to learn more about, but you know, all the things we are, we're discussing about this new car and it doing the big power and big speed and big everything Man, uh, unless you are spending a lot of money on exotic materials to bring the weight down, uh, weight's always going to be an issue. Uh, Steve Lawrence, say, MP, a few podcasts ago, you mentioned that you strongly disliked the Schumacher documentary on Netflix. Could you please elaborate? He was not my favorite driver, but that documentary made me like him more. Have I been deceived? Uh, you say, thanks, bro-migo. All right, bro. Uh, I don't know. As a, I was exchanging with a friend of mine uh, who makes films, I said it just it felt like a homework project. It felt like a Wikipedia page came to life. Like, what made him special? What made Schumacher stand out? 
among his peers? What made him the best of his era? What shady things about him made him beloved by some but not by all? What things did he do that were innovative? Uh, Like, this was a book report. It was just so disappointing. And I say that as someone who followed Schumacher from his Formula 3 days. Uh, So I know him. I know his story. I have almost the same exact complaint about the Senna documentary, which was widely lauded as the best thing ever in the history of Earth. It's gorgeous to watch. It was beautiful. The presentation on the screen, the imagery, the style was all gorgeous. As a story, it was garbage. It was cherry-picked. Uh, the family was directly involved. Always a concern. So what do you get? You get a one-sided story. Senna, probably number one driver ever for me, uh, period. So flawed. So flawed. And that's half of what made him fascinating. Half of what made him who he was. And so to have this scrubbed clean, whitewashed for the most part, let's not get into any of that. Let's just show you the the home runs and the ice cream and, and the candy canes and all the beautiful happy things and the unicorns and rainbows. Like it was just a, really? And so the sad thing, and this is drawing back to the Schumacher part here, Steve, the sad thing is there are many who knew of Senna but didn't really know Senna who saw the documentary and came away with hero worship thinking he was a god because he was presented like almost or a semi-faultless god. And it's such a false read. And what's been interesting or sad or whatever since then is to talk to some folks whose primary education about Senna came from that documentary. And you talk to them and you just hear that they clearly know half the story because that's pretty much all that they were given. And they bought into it. And again, no fault against them, but just they think that what they were shown was the man. And it wasn't. Not the full man. The full man, now he was fascinating. The guy presented in Senna? Eh, not really. And so just from a historical standpoint, it just it's irksome that a false read of this person is out there. Um, and so that was really what I took away from the Schumacher documentary. Uh, hey, he had a real big life-changing thing happen. And I didn't expect them to show him. I didn't expect any of that. I thought it was really powerful for what his son said about the change and what he's been dealing with by not really having a father. I get all that. But did they kind of breeze through the fact of, did we really know anything that went into real depth as to anything there? Not really. And so, again, I'm not saying I wanted gory details. I absolutely didn't. I just found it, again, weird that given the opportunity and with the family's participation in this, where they said that they were going to go deep and share all kinds of things, like you go, no, I mean, you showed really emotional sides from a family reaction standpoint, 
that was I, I applaud them for that. But it just felt like we basically got to the end of the movie. I'm sorry, documentary. They crammed in the fact that Michael's been in what we think is a coma or similar for quite a while, and off we went. So that's just the part to me, Steve, where you go, hey, we're doing a documentary about this racing hero. I love that there's been a a revolution of sorts. Um, I'm helping a little bit with one right now. I just fear that with the wanting to get whomever's family's approval on whatever documentary, we start wandering down a path where you go, okay, we are painting a false picture of who this person was in their entirety for the sake of glitz and glamour and wanting to just leave a really happy and and Instagram-type taste in people's mouth. So that's what bothered me. How's this? This is like just one of the, the main things that stood out. What's the one area that Michael Schumacher revolutionized in Formula One like it had never been done before? Fitness. Nonstop. They touched on it a tiny little bit. Here's an area where the guy went to an insane level for his training. Something that, like, when he came in, there were still a couple of drivers who smoked. Like, right? (laughs) That was the era. This guy has just brought, like, took this to a whole new level, a place where folks are doing the Michael Schumacher routine today, many of them not even knowing that he's the guy who made fitness a a a 24-hour-a-day thing in motor racing. I know that's just a small little facet, but this is the thing the guy did that no one else had really done before. Uh, If you think about the design driver evolution loop between himself, Ross Braun, and Rory Byrne, if we think about their time at Ferrari in particular, how before, I mean, again, maybe we're talking back in like the 60s with a Bruce McLaren or a Dan Gurney or similar, but really at least modern era, the single driver working with the technical director, the chassis designer, the aerodynamicist, and being in a permanent development and improvement loop. Everything is built around him. He is the one helping to drive everything forward there, being empowered to be that person who is so centrally important, allowed to do so because he was so valuable in that regard, Steve, right? Spoke about Senna, right? He was massively influential with all the F1 teams that he drove for. To the level of a Schumacher? No. Like Senna and his relationship with Honda, for example, legendary. Just refining every motor down to the millionth of a percentage of an everything. Got it. Total car, total vehicle, one person, a driver at the center of this constantly churning loop of improvement at Ferrari. I mean, we don't have anyone like it today. There's been no one to follow him anything close to that. And again, unless we're talking decades and decades before Schumacher, 
where a guy like a gurney or a mclaren or whomever might go out to the shop floor and bend a piece of metal and might come up with an idea and do it themselves like in the modern era nobody liked that did we learn anything about that did you come to appreciate how singular a talent schumacher was in that regard and how at ferrari that man was so much more than just a driver don't think so um it's just these things man where you go all right cool safe like a book report uh it just saddens me because for those who maybe didn't know or learning about schumacher for the first time or at least getting a deep dive on him for the first time you got half the story um what are we going to do uh we're going to close with Haiku from Jim Kaiser, who puts our questions together, says the racer mailbag seems like a good way to go. The tradition lives. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, I'm supposed to get the first batch of questions here. Was supposed to get it today, but uh, hopefully they'll show up tomorrow. I've seen the volume of questions that have come through, and eh, I'll be honest. Um, and this is just an appreciation to y'all. Um, we have had more questions come through for this week's episode of the listener Q and a, um, like y'all are just blessing me and my wife with, uh, some pretty amazing stuff here and what y'all send in. So I appreciate what you do for us. So Jim, thanks for that haiku. Um, why don't we close with a question from our pal, Jameen Tuttle, MP hope all is good as it can be in the home front. Enjoying the news of more potential road to indie growth, especially indie lights. It's wondering what part of working as a race team member you enjoyed the most, the early club level days, say indie lights or the IRL. Um, what would it take you to get to go back to becoming a full-time team member? Well, <laughs> any team that thought I was even vaguely worthy of being a full-time team member. That's what it would take. Um, I enjoy what I do now way too much. What's funny is I have more and more of my old friends and colleagues that I used to work with long time ago. I'll say like, hey, man, you kind of found your calling here. So I think is a polite way of saying, yeah, maybe you were kind of trash back then. I'm kidding. I don't know if trash is the word, but uh, I do love what I do here way too much, Jameen. I, I've, I certainly learned that I, I am a creative type so being able to do creative stuff uh is fulfilling turning wrenches it becomes repetitive very quickly says the guy with more than 1100 podcasts so i guess that could be counted as repetitive uh what did i love most i mean there it's really hard to say here because they all had such amazing things club level uh atlantic super v usf 2000 lights like pro mazda i mean i worked on all those levels even after I, quote, retired from IndyCar, doing engineering and stuff. Um, loved the IRL, loved working in CART, worked in IMSA a little bit too. Like, there's just amaz amazing stages at every point. Um, first Indy 500's always going to be that thing that life, lifelong dream and achievement for me. Um that was amazing. Indie Lights was so much fun. Real camaraderie, getting to see and, and be close 
to cart during its heyday, you know, during its, its golden era. Um, that was amazing. The club level stuff. It was so much acting a fool. The, I don't know how we weren't arrested days because there was just, yeah, a lot of foolishness there. So I don't know if I could point out one that I enjoyed the most, but I can tell you what I did enjoy most of all. It's that across club level, uh, Atlantic and lights, USF 2000, and then even into the IRL, um, and heck, even cart, there were some of the same people. There was a, a smallish group of us from the Bay Area, mostly those of us who worked at Sears Point at various uh, uh, racing teams and prep shops, who all kind of sort of migrated towards the next step and the next step and the next step together. And so in that story that I did about uh, Trevor Green Smith, who uh, just left Andretti Autosport to go work for a Formula One team. Like he mentioned a guy by the name of John Ennick as one of his mentors. Well, Ennick was one of my mentors, uh, one of my, again, dear oldest friends. He and I worked at the same shop as Matt Swan. And so Ennick was a god to me, uh, style-wise, music, everything was a god. And... It was mean to me sometimes, but that's okay. He, that's, you know, kind of his thing with the younger folks, but um, was also really loving, taught me a ton. Being on the road with him uh, was just eye-opening. Uh, hell, going and spending a weekend with him over in Berkeley and just going around here and there on an off weekend was just, right, it's amazing. And then into Atlantics with him, um, Indy Lights, he came to work at Genoa when I was at Genoa. Then we at Genoa with uh, Tom Knapp, who was the team manager uh, in Indy Lights, become an IRL team. Well, guess what? It's me and Enik and Michael Cannon. I uh, got to work with Cannon in Atlantic and then Lights, and then he went on to cart while we were in the IRL, but um, worked with Swan, obviously, back in the day. Then Swan and I worked together in cart. Just that's the stuff, Jameen, where it's like when I see Swanee on pit lane, I grab his ass or smack him in the head or he does the same to me. And it probably looks really weird to others going like, all right, that might not be what behavior I would expect to see. But we've been doing that for like 30 plus years or whatever. And so... That's the part that I would say I love the most. It's that the series change, the years and decades change, but that was me grabbing Swan's ass 30 years ago at a club race or Enik punching me in the nuts or when I was at Laguna, at Laguna, when I was at Long Beach for the season finale, uh, I'm walking out of the media center to go somewhere and I kind of hear these feet shuffling up behind me really quickly, and someone gives me a wet willy. That's For those who don't know, it's where you lick your index finger and stick it in someone's ear. I hear someone like rush up behind me and give me a wet willy in my right ear, and I turn around, and it's Anik. It's freaking Anik, who's there running a couple of the, the vintage Formula Atlantic cars. And so 
you know, uh, I don't know how old Enoch is, 50-something. And it's the two of us assing around at the same kind. I mean, he and I were at Lagoon or at Long Beach, whatever it was, the first time together in 1990 or 91 with Atlantics. So it's probably that stuff, Jameen. And I, I think... I'm not fortunate in that regard because I know of a few other folks who kind of grew up with similar type things, buddies in whatever region that they came up in the sport and they kind of progressed similar levels and got to the same places at the same time. But I know that's not a, not something that a lot of people have in any car. And so I'd say that's probably the thing that I love the most that I see Cannon, and yeah, his hair is gray and my beard's gray for sure. And we're older and I'm uglier and he's still the same, but you know, we're a bunch of buddies that have been doing this for a long time, Swanee as well, and just have a lot of love for each other. And so it's that little sense of community where, yeah, I am a reporter and I am a journalist and I am a whatever. I don't care what my job title is. Do you think when I'm in the paddock or on pit lane and I see all the folks that I've known, whether it's the names that I've mentioned or others that I've known for a long time, worked at at other teams, like, you know, there are no lines. There's no division of job and title and what. It's like that's my guy over here. Love you, man. Have you? How you been? Um, it's that thing. So that's the part I love, brother. All right, thank y'all for listening. Uh, I don't know who our guest is going to be this week. I think I'm going to ask Polo since it's been one month since he won the title, and I want to see how his life has changed. So we'll see if he is free. Hopefully, he will. But uh, send me a note. Send me a whatever. Uh, Tell me, give me answers to the stuff I ask questions about. And other than that, I appreciate all of you. Definitely appreciate our pals at Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. I'll speak to you here soon. <laughs>